This episode is brought to you by the Western Outdoor News Strike King Big Bass Challenge. Held on May 22nd, 2021 out of Russo's Marina on the California Delta, it's a guaranteed $7,500 total cash payout based on a 100 angler field. As an added bonus, the first 100 anglers registered gets a free lose fishing rod. We have about 50 left and counting, so head over to wonews.com under the tournaments tab to sign up today. Today on the show, we have a Eastern Sierra update ahead of the opener, a call-in report from Seaforth Landing in San Diego, and Cecil Hogue from Panther Martin and Sea Eagle Boats. Let's start the show. So let's get straight to it. You might have seen it in the latest issue of Western Outdoor News or seen the photos on the Western Outdoor News Instagram or Facebook pages, but the Polaris Supreme out of San Diego has seen some recent bluefin success. But don't just take it from me. Yeah, this is Kirk from C4 Sport Fishing just calling in here. Uh, we had the uh, Polaris Supreme return yesterday morning. They had 24 passengers. They had 24 nice bluefin up to about 90 pounds. The bulk of that fish was uh, 30 to 50 pounds there. Recommended tackle was uh, 30 to 50 pounds and small flat falls. Um, we also had the San Diego out today back down to the Coronado Islands. They had a better day than last few. Uh, islands uh, had some yellowtail uh, good bite. They had 27 for their uh, trip today. Uh, if you do have any questions, uh, we do have trips leaving this weekend, Friday night. Uh, the uh, Player Supreme uh, is a day and a half. We also have the Tribute and Pacifica both day and a half, all targeting that blue from there, guys. Um, so give us a call at 619-224-3383 or visit us online at Seaforth Landing to make your reservation. Small flat falls seem to be working for those bluefin right now. A big thank you to Kurt for calling in and leaving that update on our voice mailbox. And if you have a quick report like that that you'd like to share, please give us a call and leave a voicemail after the beep at 702-850-4966. With the Eastern Sierra opener rapidly approaching at the end of April, we spoke with Jeff Simpson of Mono County Tourism to give us the full rundown of what anglers can expect in the Eastern Sierra for the opener. Yeah, you know, a lot a lot of changes this year, um, not only with COVID, but, you know, as we know, there's there's been a statewide regulation, fishing regulation change, um, some stocking issues with CDFW. Uh, we'll be continuing to do our stocking this year. And... Um, you know, water levels are always uh, a topic, whether we have too much water or not enough water. It's looking like we're going to be about average this year. But, um, yeah, lots, I think, to go over and lots of changes for this upcoming season. Normally, I always talk, you know, I always talk to you at the show to get my information on the Sierra preview stuff. And you always touch on, I don't know if you tell me a dollar, I can't remember if you tell me a dollar amount or a poundage of what you're budgeted for and where those um, premium organ fish are going to be stocked. Can you touch on that for us? Yeah, so we, we always, you know, stock about the same dollar amount. Um, here at the county, in Mono County, we have $100,000 that we stock about 18 different destinations with. That equates to about 18,000 pounds uh, of fish uh, from Desert Springs up there in Oregon. Uh, this year we're going to buy uh, mixed load sizes, so... We'll have some kind of one-pound fish, but we'll also have those trophy, you know, three to five-pound rain fish. So it'll be kind of a mixed load 
uh, outside of the, the rivers and streams. We're going to put one-pounders in there. It's hard for those big guys to kind of swim, um, right. you know, those, those more shallower waters. So $100,000 for myself and 18 bodies of water. And then the town of Mammoth Lakes also spends an additional $100,000 just on the Mammoth Lakes Basin. That's Mary, Mammy, Twin, and George. And so right. additional 18, um, 18,000 pounds will be going in just the Lakes Basin. Uh, you know, you add that up, it's 24 different bodies of water, $200,000 worth of fish coming down from Oregon uh, throughout the season. There's also that Bridgeport Fisheries Enhancement Foundation that adds its own closer to uh, to your neck of the woods around Bridgeport, too, on top of yeah, all that. Yeah, no, absolutely. So that's just the county and the town stocking. There are many, many different nonprofit organizations, um, private marina operators, even just citizens that want to put more fish in their favorite body of water. There are a lot of other loads coming down from all of those entities. BFDF, or the Bridgeport Fish Enhancement Foundation, is probably the number one nonprofit and the number one buyer of fish outside of the government entities. They primarily stock the Bridgeport area, so places like uh, Bridgeport Reservoir, Upper and Lower Twin Lakes, Robinson Creek, um, Big and Little Virginia Lakes, and then sometimes also the West Walker River. The majority of their funds kind of stays local uh, with that. They also do a nice little uh, little tournament at the end of June. I think it's the last Saturday in June um, on Bridgeport Reservoir there to raise funds to stock more fish. So yeah, a lot of a lot of other entities stocking outside of uh, outside of the county and town. Right. I'm glad you mentioned that because I I know there's you know you mentioned your budget or the Mona County budget. And Mammoth Lakes on its own has its own $100,000 budget for stocking. But then there's mm-hmm. also that foundation. And I also believe like Convict Lake pays for some of its own fish from the Desert Springs um, on down the line. And I think there's even some going on down in Bishop. Oh, yeah. Lots going on um, just about everywhere. Convict Lake is one of the biggest private marina operators that buys. Silver Lake Resort also does a ton. Marina purchases a lot. Um and then, yeah, moving down further south on 395, um, the Bishop Chamber of Commerce, Sabrina, North Lake, South Lake, I know have their own kind of entities. And, and they purchase their fish from uh, Wright's Rainbows out of Idaho. But, yeah, I mean, there's there's lots of stocking going on behind the scenes. Um, you know, regardless of if you're catching fish or not, we, we keep those, those lakes and streams very full of fish. It was pretty cool to have Desert Springs slide into that spot when, you know, vacated when... Uh the Alpers Ranch shut down, you know, because it's the same quality of fish, I think, you know, from well, what I've seen. You know, technically it's the same fish. I think right. the Springs is, you know, provided the, the fingerlings to the Alpers Ranch or Conway Ranch for many, many, many years. So they've been involved with, with the Eastern Sierra and, and fish rearing for, for many years. And uh, they're a great partner. Ethan up there at the Springs always works with us, makes sure we have top priority on, on the best fish, whether we want the eight pounders like we did one year. You know, the mm-hmm. three to five pound, the one pound, um, or even just, you know, some small catchable size fish um, to fill in the gaps with CDFW. Um, they're fantastic people, a fantastic organization, and they provide quality fish. Uh, so speaking of CDFW and, and new trout regulations in up there in Mono County, you, you mentioned over email that there's a ton of new open areas. Can you can you open up uh, about some of those open up areas? It's quite confusing, even though, you know, it was a simplification, regula- regulation simplification, I think is how they phrased it. You know, for us, there's um, there's not much change for some of kind of, I would say, your your favorite front country lake destinations. 
I'm trying to frame this up the easiest way possible for everyone to understand. And we've kind of put a PDF together on our website and our social media of, of all, you know, kind of the most fished areas in Mono County and what the regulations are going to be moving forward. But I think the easiest explanation that I've heard is that all lakes and streams will be open year round streams being uh, catch and release barbless artificial flies and lures only from uh, November 16th to the last Friday in April. And then, you know, obviously a five bag limit with bait um, during the, the traditional fishmas season with the exception of 60 kind of, you know, um, <laughs> special regulations. And, you know, the majority of those special regulation areas are the lakes um, that, that we all know that are front country that are on 395 that are pretty much just still open during the fishmas season, last Saturday in April through November 15th being closed in the winter. You know, there are some tweaks to that with places like Crowley Lake. Um, but for the most part, uh, the, the things that are open now that traditionally wouldn't be are the backcountry hiking lakes, which, you know, are obviously very snow impacted right now. Um, but the streams, the streams are what are open right now. So if you look just kind of like in the Bridgeport area, um, places like Robinson Creek, Green Creek, Virginia Creek, uh, the West Walker, Little Walker River, um, you know, Pickle Meadows, some of these areas that may have been closed in the winter in the past are now open for catch and release fishing. So I've, I've been working with a few partners, um, specifically the Twin Lakes Trout Foundation out of Lower Twin Lakes in Bridgeport, and uh, they're bringing fish up right now to stock to try and entice people to come up and start fishing um, before we get to that, you know, fish miss date at the end of at the end of April. Can you dwindle it down to one spot? Just I know it's probably hard to choose one. Can you choose one spot that you are the most excited to fish during the Sierra opener? You know, if you're talking about the opener on fish miss, I I have um, a family tradition with my dad. We've always gone out and fish Bridgeport Reservoir. Um, my entire life. So I will continue to do that with him. Um, my, I'm excited as my sons are of age now where I think we can take them out and, uh, and do some fishing with them. So <laughs> this year, I think that um, will be something special for our family. But I think other than that, I'm, I'm excited to really just hit these streams that are open, open early. And I know it's, it's, you know, there's no bait right now. It's artificial flies and lures only. But we have a little Tinkara fly rod, you know, it doesn't have a reel. You just kind of do that, you know, willow stick type casting and you can get into those smaller streams and, um, you know, to just hit those early when no one's around, you know, when the fish haven't been um, seen any anglers yet this year. Uh, that's what we're excited to do is kind of get into those smaller stream areas with our fly rod. Mm-hmm. What about you, Mike? One one location that you're you would hit if you if you could only choose one, which one would it be? Um, I, I actually never, I've never been to this opener as an, as a recreational angler. I've only been up there with Western Outdoor News in a working capacity, but, um, I would probably get on a boat on Crowley. I mean, they, I, I see a ton of three to six pound cutthroat caught and nice browns right there at the opener. And, you know, maybe it's just cause it's the area I cover for the, um, the opener, but back to what Jeff said about having some creeks open ahead of time, what it also does is if you're already up there for the opener, you know, I'll be up there Thursday. I mean, it, it gives you something to do before everything else opens up. You can, you know, you can run out, like you said, and, you know, swing some flies down a creek or, um, you know, barbless jigs or, you know, you don't have to wait, you know, until the, the floodgates open on Saturday 
Um, and I think that's pretty cool. I think that's one of the coolest part of the new regs. And really quick, just to touch on the regs themselves, it is overwhelming. If you look at that list on the DFW site, you know, it's a huge list. But what I have found is if you just focus on the bodies of water that you know you or your friends and family normally hit, it's an alphabetical list. Just just look for the places you fish instead of trying to digest the entire thing. And it, it makes it a lot easier to to take in if you do it that way. Any other any other questions, Mike, for Jeff? I was going to ask him about um, the snowpack that always affects the, you know, not necessarily the opener, but the, the early spring fishing. And I know Jeff said it, it looks like it's going to be about average, but I always plan my trips around that. Like I know, you know, if there's a ton of snow, Tioga Pass is going to, you know, open later in the year. I know you can't say for sure because actually it could snow still before the opener. But if you had to estimate when some of the major passes would, would open, um, like Tioga Pass, uh, what would you say, Jeff? Yeah, you know, this year we had some nice dialogue with uh, the National Park Service and um, talking about their process, the, the the hurdles they have on plowing that road and opening that road. We're we're hovering around 60 to 70 percent snowpack this year, so it's just slightly below below average, I would say. And um, everyone, including Caltrans, you know, which which handles. Uh, Sonora Pass and Monitor Pass, they all start plowing uh, on April 1st. So, you know, we're less than a week out for them to start plowing those passes. And it all depends on a lot of factors like down trees, you know, how much wind did we have? Is there a lot of down trees in the middle? Right. You know, I I would say uh, for Sonora and Monitor, you you might see those open up pretty quick, maybe even before opener or just after. Uh, and And then the National Park Service always tries to plan for opening before Memorial Day weekend. So with a below average snowpack this year, I would think that all three passes should 100% be open before Memorial Day weekend and before that big kind of summer rush. One other variable here that we have to talk about is um, is lodging and in, in terms of COVID. We have had some additional restrictions on lodging in Mammoth Lakes. Those have been lifted. So we are open um, uh, for lodging 100% at this point, no capacity issues. Um, but just basic state and CDC guidelines with masking and distancing. And, um, you know, we're just saying if, if you're feeling sick, stay home if you can for us. Uh, you know, we are a, a tourism dependent um, economy here. We love our tourists. We love them coming up. And, you know, all of our best friends uh, are, are, are these tourists that come up and visit us this these years. But with that, you know, also brings the virus and more spread. And, you know, we're just, you know, preaching safety and, and caution as much as possible. And and to follow, you know, state guidelines. We're looking forward to the season. Do you have any any parting words or words of advice for anybody heading up there? Everything is located on our website at monocounty.org. We have extensive fishing pages on there. Uh, we link to all the people in the Eastern Sierra that do fishing reports. So if you're going to Crowley, we link to all the guides down there and, and the marina operators, um, all the tackle shops that do reports. We, we link externally to all those. So you can find those all on our website at monocounty.org. This year's Eastern Sierra opener will be a breath of fresh air as more and more COVID restrictions are lifted. I'm sure so many of you are looking to get out there. In case you can't make it up to the opener and you're looking to scratch that trout itch, Western Outdoor News is holding Troutcast at Lake Cuyamaca April 24th and 25th. 
we're raffling off three boats, a Klamath Advantage 16 with a Suzuki 20 outboard, and two Sea Eagle boats, the Fish Skiff 16 with a six horsepower Suzuki, and the Pack Fish 7. It's a packable one-man boat, it's pretty awesome. Raffling that off, you don't even need to catch a fish to win those boats, but it doesn't hurt, right? Time is running out, so sign up and mark your calendars for the Western Outdoor News Troutcast at Lake Cuyamaca, April 24th and 25th. Speaking of Sea Eagle, our next guest on the show is the legend himself, Cecil Hogue, president of Sea Eagle and Panther Martin. I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast, you have a tackle box full of Panther Martin lures. We talk with Cecil about the legacy of both of the companies, as well as the adventurous and colorful past of his family members. Let's jump over to our conversation with Cecil Hogue. Panther Martin was a uh, business that... um actually my father bought in 1961 there was a company that had a bunch of fishing tackle and my father bought the company and one of the products uh, that was included was panther martin lures which at the time were doing a tiny sales volume of about eight thousand dollars Uh, In any case, my father bought this company and we didn't really understand that we owned Panther Martin or that it was part of our product line until about 10 years later, we noticed that it had gone up to about $250,000 in sales. So it started to uh, attract our attention. By that time, I had come into the business and was active in the business. There was a guy in the West who was um, one of our representatives, and he went around every tiny tackle shop throughout the West, all through the mountain states, and called on all of these uh, very, very small mom-and-pop tackle shops kind of spread the religion of what a great uh, fishing lure it was. Panther Martin is a, a unique design. It's the first inline spinner in the world. The shaft goes directly through the blade. The blade is convex, concave. So that gives it a unique spinning action and also gives it extra vibration. And when it's combined with the um, uh, heavyweight body, uh, it creates a kind of uh, beautiful casting lure that can be retrieved at slow or fast speeds and uh, can be used as a kind of a countdown lure and at different uh, heights uh, fished very, very effectively. And it has a giant history of always catching fish. Um, and um, it's primarily known for trout, but it also catches salmon, steelhead. It also catches uh, bass. We started with a pretty simple selection of uh, lures, and then over time we expanded it to multiple sizes and colors. And uh, over the years, we came to have what we presently have, which is about 1,200 different uh, fishing lures with Panther Martin. We had a couple episodes ago, we had Mike Lum from the Fred Hall shows, and he was talking about how tackle used to be used to be everywhere. I mean, not even just in tackle shops, but what what do you think happened culturally with fishing to where 
lures have have kind of disappeared from shelves of just general stores to be more only inclusive in tackle shops? Well, first of all, I would disagree a little bit with you because I think there's still many, many uh, little mom and pop shops that are part garages, part general stores that still offer Panther Martins uh, and still swear by them, and uh, especially in resort areas in the mountains. Um, however, I would say that general retailers, uh, a lot of them just got out of fishing tackle altogether. Uh, so there were many um, kind of general interest stores, kind of like a Target uh, that used to carry fishing tackle, but uh, ended up deciding that wasn't their main kind of goods to sell, and they just moved away uh, from it. And I would say that the distribution of fishing lures is more restricted. I think in the West, we sell through Bass Pro uh, and Walmarts and um, Big Five and Sportsman's Warehouse, a number of different well-known kind of basic outline. But we also sell thousands, literally thousands of smaller mom and pop type stores. Some of them are gun stores during one part of the season and fishing stores in another part of the season. Some of them are garages. Some of them are like little general stores selling everything from uh, gasoline to uh, flannel shirts to um, birdseed and fishing tackle. But the industry has changed greatly over the years. Um, in this last year, there's been a renaissance um, because of uh, the coronavirus forced many people to seek activities that they wouldn't have to be exposed to a lot of people. And they chose uh, fishing and boating mm -hmm. as uh, uh, an attribute of that. It take me back to to 1968 when when you decided to start Sea Eagle and and how did that decision come to mind and uh, tell me about the early days of Sea Eagle. Well, first of all, it wasn't my decision; it was my father's decision. He decided to go into inflatable boats for a very strange reason, and that was he thought he could sell them by mail order. He was a mail order marketer, uh, and even when we sold fishing tackle, he used many of his marketing techniques uh, to sell our fishing lures. But in the case of our inflatable boats, he thought it could be packed in a box and shipped by UPS or uh, by the mail in some cases, and it was practical to sell it through mail order, and that's how we started. I came into the business at the same time my father bought the business, and uh, I would imagine that at my first uh, few months in the business, I had the same belief that many people had at one time about inflatables, and that is that they're easy to puncture and uh, not very practical. But I came to learn the characteristics of the crafts, and um, we started with inflatable kayaks and then expanded to uh, motor mount boats, and then we expanded to supported fabric inflatables. There are 
two types of material that are used in inflatables, unsupported PVC, which can be, uh, if it's good, uh, very high quality molecular formulation made in a very heavy thickness, so it's very durable. It can also be terrible if it's made in a very flimsy thickness of the not a good formulation. There's another quality of inflatables in that supported fabric where you have a woven fabric and you can have much higher air pressures and much stronger materials and much more rigid feeling boats. Uh, in the 60s, we started with a simple unsupported PVC kayaks. Uh, by the 70s, we had moved into supported inflatable kayaks and then into inflatable sport boats, which take up to 30 horsepower engines. And then we developed uh, a whole bunch of uh, unique patented inflatable kayaks, inflatable canoes, and uh, fishing boats. Uh, a wide variety of boats today, 27 different models, um, and includes everything from kayaks to sport runabouts to uh, fishing boats to uh, stand-up paddle boards. Tell me about how the design process gets started. Do you are these written down on sketches? Are they how do, how do you get inspiration for some of these uh, for some of these designs? At first I learned to uh, write very crude and simple drawings with a pencil on a graph pad. Uh, and I did that for about 10 years and came out with some boats that I ended up patenting the Sea Eagle Fold Cat. It's a fishing boat that rolls up that I have a patent on. Our Sea Eagle Razor Light is another kind of kayak and our Fast Track is another kind of kayak that have special unique features to make them track better, paddle faster, or be easier to fish with. So as time went on, I uh, came to do more and more. I developed a, a kayak called the Paddle Ski, which was uh, a unique kind of catamaran kayak. That probably was my first totally unique design. It just was a, a long and gradual process, but uh, I then learned uh, a drawing program on my iPad, a graphic drawing program. and. Now I produce uh, all of the designs on a drawing program. Now I, I think that almost all of our boats are different and unique from any other competitive products. I've always taken a different tact when it comes to inflatable boats in competition, and that is not to ever directly compete with somebody else or to copy their designs but to develop our own designs uh, and fill what I consider to be holes in the market or provide features that other products don't provide. Obviously, with stand-up paddleboarding just taking off here on the West Coast, one of your coolest designs is the stand-up paddleboard that's, uh, that's, that could be specialized for fishing. Can you tell me about that design process and, and specifically about that model? I think it's, it's so uh, cool. I believe you're speaking of our Fish Sup 126. Uh, I developed that boat because I, and I consider it a boat almost more than a sup. It's because it's pretty big. It's 12 foot six and it's wide. Unlike a lot of sups, it's 40 inches wide. So it is infinitely more stable. 
I think it's exciting to fish from a sup, but I don't know that there's any great benefit to falling in the water. And I believe that it's probably good to be able to stand stably while you fish, especially when you're casting, mm -hmm. uh, especially when you're pulling in a fish. So the first thing I wanted to do was make it wide enough and stable enough. I was, I knew something about surfing, so I liked a kind of twin fin at the rear, making it wide at the back and narrow at the bow so it could paddle straight, uh, so that the shape was completely my choice. And then the last feature or last two features of that particular product was that I added a motor mount so it could take a little electric motor, which we happened to sell. Uh, and I also made it able to accommodate a swivel seat so it could actually be comfortable and somebody could uh, turn in 360 degrees and have visibility in all directions. So basically, I put in features that nobody else was uh, had thought to to put in just because I saw that there was a need to have, you know, more visibility, a need to be able to take a little electric motor. People don't always want to paddle uh, and a need to be stable and not have to worry about falling in while you're catching a fish. So, so can, speaking of falling in, can, can you tell me about the, the quality assurance and, and kind of the, uh, the testing process that you guys take? Do you guys have like a test lake or a, a test body of water that you take these out on? First of all, we're in Port Jefferson, so we're right near uh, and we're on Long Island, which is an island, a uh, big island admittedly, but we're near four bays, literally about a mile from where I'm sitting in our office right now. But more importantly, I live on the water, so I test these boats and frankly leave them in the water for sometimes uh, a year or two before even introducing them, testing mm -hmm. them. Uh, when I developed the Razor Light Kayak, uh, I went through 14 separate wear, uh, prototypes and it took five years to finalized the design, which ended up being exquisitely simple, but the measurements that I ended up with were basically came from long experience of what worked and what didn't work, how high to make the sides, how wide to make the cockpit, how to make it actually track well and paddle well. Those were the problems that I saw. I wanted a kayak that paddled faster than anybody other, any other inflatable kayak in the world. And I think that's what we developed with that product. New for 2021, I saw that the Sea Eagle has the Fast Cat 12. Tell me about the catamaran design and, and why you guys introduced the, uh, the Fast Cat 12. Inflatables have certain problems. First of all, I don't think inflatable sport boats have changed in design for about 60 years. And I feel that round tubes are very beneficial and that's generally inflatables were made with round tubes. The introduction of drop stitch, which is a technology to make uh, floors for inflatable boats and also stand up paddle boards introduced the possibility of having straight sides. And I came to the conclusion that if you could 
take a drop stitch and have a floor that is flat and horizontal uh, and two side pontoons that are vertical and going down into the water, you create far more inside space and you create kind of a great tracking keel system. Uh, it also provides a much more stable ride. So the idea and was to have an inflatable boat that you just blow up and go. Uh, mm -hmm. No assembly of floorboards uh, and uh, so something very, very simple uh, and reasonably light as far as an inflatable boat. The fast cat is about 130 pounds when you put in swivel seats and everything uh, with the transom. Uh, it's pretty light for uh, a 12 foot 6 boat. It goes... Um, 14 miles an hour with a little five horsepower engine. So it's incredibly uh, fuel efficient and uh, literally on three gallons of gas, you can go for four or five uh, boating journeys in a week or two weeks. So it makes a very flexible craft and you get a lot of inside space, a lot of stability and uh, great tracking ability. That's the reason that I came up with the fast cat. Sea Eagle, Panther Martin, um, both of these companies obviously hugely successful in the fishing world. Um, can you tell me about you personally? I know you have a you have a uh, a blog entitled Tangled Tales of an American Family. Tangled Tales of an American Family is a kind of uh, avocation that's not really a vocation. Uh, it's, uh, you could say, a hobby. Um, I have an eclectic uh, family with a lot of strange characters in that family, and that's really kind of where it started. I wanted to put down some history of uh, different family members that go back and some of those family members were sailing clipper ships across uh, the Pacific Ocean in the 1840s, and some were uh, in the Civil War, and some were, uh, and my grandfather was a shipbuilder in New York. He had the largest ship uh, building plant in America, and maybe in the world at the time. Uh, so the there was a lot of uh, history to draw on, so it, but it was basically uh, a hobby. Yeah, there's actually there's one post specifically, and, and you you definitely touched on it with uh, with your grandpa. The the post is titled "Grandpa Gets Busted." Uh, can you tell me more about that story, just for our audience? Well, I had a, a, a grandfather uh, who drank too much, uh, and um, he was also very, very wealthy. I guess when Prohibition came, he became a little bit upset uh, and decided um, that he was going to take the situation into his own hands. He had five separate yachts over his lifetime. Uh, he started, I think, around uh, 60 feet and then went to 70 and then 80, 90. And I think his last boat was 125 feet long. Anyway... That kind of boat can hold quite a bit of alcohol if you need it to, and uh, he felt he needed it to. He, uh, I happened to come across a newspaper article where I found that he had been uh, 
arrested and busted for carrying 1,360 cases of whiskey. Oh my gosh. Probably quite a bit for one man to drink, but. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's tons of stories like that on, on the blog. I had such a fun time uh, going through and seeing some of those stories and seeing the photos to go along with it are, are really cool. Well, that's very, uh, very nice of you to say. I appreciate it. <laughs> a big thank you to all of our guests today. And also thank you for listening. I keep seeing the number of listeners growing and growing and I'm definitely taking notice. So thank you for spreading the word about the podcast. I'm so excited for what we have in store Stay tuned next week. We have a full Sierra opener discussion with Western Outdoor News contributor Ernie Cowan. The week after that, we'll be talking about the Juan Bass California Open recap. So we have so much in store. Make sure you hit subscribe on your podcast feed to get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And I will see you next week. Mm